From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 57. We've got one of my really good friends from the industry. I've been fortunate to speak with him on the Perform Better Tour for a number of years now. And for me, his presentations and his writings are things you just have to check out. So I think you're really going to appreciate this. And we'll realize that a guy that maybe doesn't work in baseball actually has tons to offer to baseball skill coaches and strength conditioning coaches. So we're in for a really good episode now, especially because he has a new book out. We're going to talk about that today. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality. You won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy free, paleo, keto, vegan friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally, I love it for for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, We split our time between two states, and and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, So life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, They've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest is the head of athletic performance and science for the Irish Rugby Football Union. His primary role is to oversee the delivery and development of strength and conditioning and sports science across all men's and women's national and provincial teams. Before working for Irish Rugby, he was the Director of Education and Training Systems for Exos in Phoenix, Arizona. As the Director of Education, he oversaw the development and execution of all internal and external educational initiatives. As a performance coach, he oversaw the speed and assessment components of the Exos NFL Combine Development Program and supported many athletes across the NFL, MLB, NBA, national sports organizations, and military initiatives. He completed his PhD through Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions with a dissertation focus on motor skill learning and sprinting. He's a recognized speaker and a consultant on human performance and coaching science and has numerous book chapters and peer-reviewed papers focusing on the intersection between coaching language and athlete learning. This podcast is really timely as he's just released a new book. It's called The Language of Coaching and I was fortunate to have a chance to review it months before it became available. It's going to be an amazing resource for a lot of coaches of all ages, experience levels, and sporting context. Today we talk about that and more. 
Please welcome to the show, Nick Winkleman. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure to be on. I'm excited to have you from across the pond in the, in the midst of the craziness that we're working through now. I, I think it's a good chance for all, all coaches to take some time to, to get better at their craft, but we can't actually be hands-on with the athletes. Yeah, it's it's unbelievably unique. I mean, to have the entire world, let alone the entire sporting world, basically accessible to one another, the, the amount of these conversations I'm having are fantastic and they counteract a lot of the bad stuff going on and it's funny we just uh we were just talking before the call started about how you know we've been on more zoom and facetime meetings than ever before mm. and now we're now we got to go put all this stuff in action but it kind of speaks to how the world is changing and your work your presentations i've been fortunate to see them up close on on the perform better tour over the last couple of years um they're changing the way that coaches interact with athletes and that's a, that's a huge testament to you know your dedication to the profession not just um, going out there and, and studying, you know, to make yourself better, but also taking the time to making it, um, user friendly and being a teacher as well. So I'm curious, what, what are the origins of your interest in improving the way that we communicate with athletes? What, what led you down this path? Yeah. It's, you know, it's really interesting. You, you get old enough and you have that moment where you're like, man, where did, where did all of this start? You know, is there, is there an initial moment? And I can't say there is an initial moment. I always know that my mom used to say, I talk too much. I'll probably be a lawyer and I'm going to get myself into trouble. So there was definitely something around me being a talker as a kid. Whether or not that has anything to do with this, I do not know. But probably the, the moment I keep going back to is I worked with this guy named JC as, as a personal trainer. I was learning how to become a personal trainer and I was just shadowing him. And he was kind of the, the senior personal trainer, so to speak, at the gym I was at at Oregon State University when I was still in school. And I recall shadowing him as well as shadowing a bunch of other personal trainers. And obviously, I could also reflect on the many coaches I had in, in various sports. And the thing about this guy is the way he communicated seemed to me to be so much different than everybody else. Like there was a pause before every cue. He spoke with such eloquence and precision and over time, I came to realize he primarily worked with bodybuilders, Eric, and a lot of people would come to him because he could get them to activate certain muscles and certain areas of the body better than anybody else. And he, what I came to realize is it wasn't his programming. Like his programming was good, but it wasn't that much different than what you'd see in the books and from other individuals. But it was how he communicated that programming and how he explained movements. And so for him, it was natural. I don't think he had studied it. I think if you had asked him, what's your strength? He probably would have talked about programming and, and being able to get the, the optimal load to, to optimize strength and power. But for me, I saw a completely different picture. So I banked that memory, so to speak, knowing that there was something valuable there. I think even at the time, I remember telling a, another mentor, I think you know him as well, Guido Van Rijsegum, Absolutely great that, guy. Hey, what this guy is doing is unique. I said, I think I need to write a book one day called The Forum Within. And so this was, I mean, I was 19 or 20 when I first had that thought. And then fast forward, like anyone becoming a strength coach or a personal trainer or a physio, uh, you have to start to understand the what. So I had to get the craft down. I had to know the programming, the periodization, the exercise, the analysis, the testing, all that good stuff. So that commandeered the vast majority of my attention and my time until around 2009. Okay, so in 2009, give or take, I took over the NFL Combine Development Program at Exos. And 
again, when I took this program over, I was acutely aware that my predecessors, the coaches who had coached this before me, Luke Richardson, Daryl Leto, uh, Joe Gomes, most of these guys were now in the NFL. You know, Luke would go on to win a Super Bowl. And they had built a program that had proven results. So when I took that program over, I wasn't changing the X's and O's, the reps and the sets. I mean, that thing was locked in. And Eric, you know about beautiful facilities and most certainly Exos has them. So in that first year, I was just about dotting the I's and crossing the T's. I wanted to execute that program to, to, to perfection. I didn't want to lay one down. And so I'm running that program and I'm so focused on the program and getting everything done. We get to the combine and like anybody, I pull out my pre and post video. I have that in one computer. I've got my testing on another computer and I'm watching our guys run their 40 yard dashes in real time. And I'm looking at the results. And what I notice is while everyone improved by the time they got to the combine, many of them didn't run as fast as they had when they were with me at Exos. I'm like, okay, so they're better than when they came in, but they definitely didn't translate completely what we did at Exos when they came to Indianapolis. But the other thing that struck me, and this was probably the more powerful thing, was that the way they ran, Eric, Mm-hmm. The way they moved, something had changed fundamentally, okay? And whether it was memory loss, whether it was learning loss, I don't know what it was, but all of the changes in technique, in coordination, in movement efficiency, I thought we had achieved in Phoenix were lost in the flight to Indianapolis. And ultimately what I came to realize, at least this is how I summarized it in my mind, is that they went through an eight-week program. They got physically better. They got more powerful. They got stronger. They got faster from a neuromuscular perspective. But the influence on coordination to the degree that I was able to influence them with my cues, my language, and my coaching, that somehow was lost. And ultimately, as I reflected back, it brought me to that moment with, with JC when I was that personal trainer. And I realized that as I started to dig into this area, I had overcoached. I'd used the wrong cues. I didn't pay attention to when I gave them feedback. I wasn't, I wasn't consistent with what I said. I just coached whatever error happened to pop up on that day in that repetition. I was not even a fraction as precise with my language, with how I coached compared to what I coached. And, and basically from 2009 on, I've been on a mission to understand the art, the science of coaching, bringing the how to the what. And that brings me now here today, hopefully having something I can say about it. That's really interesting. It's, it's intriguing that we, we sometimes can fool ourselves, right? We see these pronounced change in athletes, you know, in our world, you, you put 20 pounds on a pitcher in an off season and all of a sudden the radar guns lighting up and things are different, but you may not have inherently changed movement quality. Um, you may not have changed how that athlete would execute pitches with 45,000 people watching in the bottom of the ninth. So it's, it's, it's an interesting commentary, almost physiology versus psychology. Would you agree with that? Oh, uh, 100%. We always talk about when it comes to, to rugby and developing training plans for rugby, which is where I work now. It's kind of like we're serving these, these two gods. We're serving these training gods and these skill gods. And that on the training side, we're trying to get the physiology. But on the skill side, most certainly, it's the psychology. 
It's the, it's the car. It's the driver in the car. We can upgrade the car. It doesn't mean you're going to be any better at driving it. So how do we serve both in a, in a mutually beneficial way? Absolutely. And you know, I, I don't know if you feel like this, but I know I go back and I look at my, my programs from, you know, five to 10 years ago and I just want to do a face palm, you know, like there's stuff that just, it didn't make sense. But the, yeah. the truth is that we could do that you know, on a lot of different fronts. We could do that on, on our approaches to skill development, the, the words we use, how much we talked, um, you know, or even the cues that we coach to, you know, whether it was words or not. Um, so I'm curious, you know, when you go back and you look at, you know, your own stuff or even the, you know, the young coaches that you interact with, where do you feel the lowest hanging fruit is in terms of how coaches can improve um, their communication with athletes or clients? You know, <clears throat> It starts with planning. I think that's the lowest hanging fruit because like nutrition, we all eat. Like sleep, we go to bed. And it's a matter of taking a behavior that already exists and simply looking at how can we nudge it to make it a little bit better. And so when when coaches come to a talk, you know, the language of coaching, read the book, whatever it might be, and they ask that very question because when you get into it, there's a lot of different elements involved in communication and coaching. But the simplest one is in the planning. And so what do I mean by planning? And I put this in a post, I think, a few months back. And I said, it's time that our strength conditioning programs add a column for cues. Mm -hmm. And so we have it for the exercise, the reps, the sets, maybe the VBT velocity you're looking for. But what about our language? Have we given consideration to the key cues, the brief phrases that we use right before the player or the athlete moves, have we given consideration to those from a teaching perspective? And the way I like to think about a cue is the way I translate the ideas in my head into the movement in their body. And what we find is if we watch coaches in practice, they tend to have certain cues for certain movements just on a loop. And they'll repeat those cues over and over again, possibly say them louder from time to time, like they're in a foreign country, but very rarely are they updating in real time what they say and how they say it. And, and most certainly that's been my experience when I reflect on my coaching. So to be able to look at the core movements you're teaching day in, day out and write down historically the key two or three cues that you know work really well to teach that movement, especially if you're working with someone for the first time. But we then need to take that and evolve it in that if I'm working with an athlete, whether it be squatting, sprinting, change of direction, and I'm deploying these cues, we all know that not every cue is going to work for every athlete. We've all had the cues that were great for a category of person, but then for whatever reason, we give it to this newbie and they give us that look like, well, what do you even mean? Or when they swallow the cue and apply it to their movement, it actually backfires and does the opposite of what you want. So the key thing for me then is how do you evolve that language to be individualized to that person? And it might be simple strategies like, okay, here's a cue. What does that mean to you? Or here's what I want us to focus on. How would you think about that? Or I give the cue to the athlete. And they naturally just repeat it back to me, whether or not I've asked them to, in their own words. Well, if I'm listening in all of those scenarios, I'm then going to update the cues on that document, or at least in my mental map, using the words that they've used. So if I said, hey, I need you to explode off the ground, what does that mean to you? Uh, you want me to drive hard? 
Okay, so in my mind, instead of saying explode off the ground next time, Eric, guess what I'm saying? Drive hard. And if I know my memory isn't very good, I might just make a little note on that programming sheet that next time that seems to be the cue that resonates with them. That's such an interesting, that's uh, not to cut you off. I mean, that's such an interesting observation because I feel like, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself, and it's probably one of the more profound changes I've seen over the last three years is that we do all this questioning during the initial assessment, right? We ask them, you know, where do you feel it? And, you know, what's your pain history or what's your training background look like? All these different things. And then the questioning just, for some reason, seems to stop there. And the second you actually start questioning them during your training session about their input on the process, I feel like buy-in just goes to an all-new level just because so many of the 100%. athletes that we encounter, they've, they've never been given an active role in the training process. It's always been a, it's a passive role where they have to show up and work hard, if, if that makes any sense, you know? Well, I'll, 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 just to that point, yeah. the biggest area right now, in my opinion, in the study around motor learning, so that the science of people learning to move is around motivation. And I think inherently we all know that people are not going to learn things that they're not motivated to learn. Mm -hmm. And yet even in the world of, of motor learning and the science of teaching, we often still talk about methods, methods of better communication, methods of better session design. But ultimately it's that social glue, that social contract of how do we get them involved, get them motivated? Because I believe that is one of the single most important variables. We all know this intuitively, but do we actively pursue it in the way we coach? And all we're highlighting here is with language is in respecting and using their language, they feel more involved, they feel ownership, i.e. motivation. That's awesome. And I'm curious, as you look back on young Nick Winkleman, I, I know young Eric Cressy talked way too much. Like I just, oh, I just need to shut myself. What, what are the things that you look at and you're like, man, I was terrible. How would you, how would you have changed yourself if you go back 10 years? Well, I, I tell like the very, the first three pages in, in the language of coaching in my new book, I talk about that. Mm -hmm. And it was, I coached the program, Eric. I didn't coach the person. Yeah. And so let me explain that if that doesn't resonate with people in that I have this piece of paper, as I just told you all in that first story, this piece of paper to me was invaluable. It was written by, for me, SNC gods. So I was not going to let that piece of paper down. And so I simply focused on instructing, instructing, calling out my cues. It was like a megaphone. It was a one way street. And so, yes, I talked too much, most certainly, but I didn't look. I didn't listen and I wasn't getting that feedback of body language, tone of voice. And I wasn't inviting them to contribute their words and their ideas to the learning process. So that was number one. I coached the program, not the person. So that had to change. And then number two was purpose. I was not purposeful in my coaching. And so what do I mean by that? And I think virtually every coach at some point is guilty of doing this. And let's say, I'm working on the skill of sprinting, just like we all work on varied skills. And I never went out there with an intention of building. And this is the, the young Nick on what we did in the last session. That basically was gone for me. Now we come out. It was a Monday. If they had a whole new host of errors in their sprint technique, I just coached whatever was in front of me. But what the older Nick realized is, wow, maybe they're a little bit tired. And there's some sluggishness going on here that is affecting how quickly they're moving their legs. But I know having watched the video for the last three weeks, their main error is in posture. So now I'm coaching their leg quickness, 
But the other day I was coaching posture, but possibly tomorrow I'm coaching dorsiflexion. And what happened is I wasn't helping this player develop a single coordination narrative. I wasn't helping them develop a singular thought that we enriched, we developed over time. If you would, when I would get a new new athlete in, it was a big chunk of marble. And I was just taking random chunks out of this marble versus trying to build a picture in the athlete's mind. And so that was the biggest thing for me that changed. And the way it manifests is I would watch them move for significantly more reps and time before I started coaching, the longer I coached. And I realized that allowed me to see the forest for the trees, the signal from the noise, what is actually a problem versus a symptom of a problem, and then bring purpose to my coaching around that specific error and work with them to find the best way for them to focus to overcome it alongside the physical work. And I think it's an important qualification there to make too, is you, you're watching more reps than you previously would have, but you're also, what you're doing is you're creating a safe place for them to fail if they need to, right? And I think that's yeah. that's something a lot of younger coaches miss out on is they let a lot of ugly reps go. Like you're not doing that with 405 pounds on a bar on a deadlift, right? It's, it's the kind of thing where we're putting them in an environment where if a rep doesn't look great, we give them a chance to work through it before we start throwing a million cues at them and make them feel a, like they're incompetent, and B, we also don't want to mess with the, the training process, right? The motivation in the room, the the rapport with other athletes that may be around there. So it's, it's a delicate balance, isn't it? Well, it is, but you make a really important point there. One, if we're providing cues on every single repetition, and sometimes we're cueing the signal, the actual problem, but sometimes we're cueing the noise. They just had a bad rep. They were tired. They weren't thinking. But each time that athlete is processing that information, each time you're either building or eroding that relationship around learning, shared understanding and connection. And ultimately, we start to erode motivation. We start to erode buy-in if we are overcoaching and coaching the wrong things. So not only is allowing the ugly reps to proceed and allow yourself to see enough reps to know what to coach versus what not to coach, it also then allows you to establish communication that is going to support motivation and connection far better. Say what you will about it being a more appropriate approach to changing the movement itself. I always talk with um, uh, like our young interns and coaches when I see them, them coaching an athlete and, and there's a bad rep happening. You know, the first thing I always do is I, I kind of watch and I see how long does this persist? Is it the yes. kind of thing where they're waiting for the athlete to figure it out? And if it goes on longer than I like, you know, I'll tactfully afterwards, I'll have a conversation with that coach and I'll say, listen, there's, there's a lot of reasons this could be in a bad place right now. Is it a, that you look at it and you don't fundamentally recognize that there's anything wrong and there's nothing wrong with that, right? You have, you learn from that experience by, you know, by encountering it. Right. And then there's B, you know, you know, it's wrong, but you just don't have the cues to fix it. Right. You, you're just fundamentally unaware of the way to change it or C, you're just, you know, you're apathetic, which, you know, is, is inexcusable. We can't have that in any capacity. And obviously like that's not the case for most of them. Usually it's that they don't see it or, you know, it's a trivial thing that, you know, you or I might pick up and that they're just young in their coaching career and they haven't established themselves. Um, more often than not, somewhere in the middle. And that, that speaks volumes for why this book is so important. You know what I mean? It's usually people can see what's wrong. We're just trying to find the most efficient way that engages athletes to, to correct mm -hmm. it. Um, and actually that, that kind of leads into my next question is, so in the, in the book, um, 
which to be honest is brilliantly researched. You know, I, I think, you know, there, people should know that this isn't just you like sitting back in your chair and making up theories. Like all this is <laughs> stuff that you have, you know, literally meticulously poured through scholarly journals and all that. And then synthesized it, you know, with your thoughts, but you highlighted a study of elite soccer coaches that I thought was really interesting and, and worthy of further, former discussion. So I'm going to give you a, a quote. You said elite coaches spent 8.9% of their time providing instruction before skill ex execution. 22.9% of their time providing instruction during skill execution and 22.6% of their time providing feedback after skill execution. This sits in contrast to the 2.3% of time used to ask questions and the 14.54% of time spent being silent. Um, and you, in, in the subsequent paragraph, you spoke to how it's representative of an over-dependence on instruction as one of the most common finding within the coaching and behavior literature. So, I mean, it, it speaks volumes. Coaches talk too much. Um, but I guess yes. the question I want to ask you is, when is the right time to talk? Is it is it context dependent? Does it depend on the the age or the training experience of the athlete in question? I know this is like a very probably subjective <laughs> question, but you know, cast as broad a net as you want, and let's roll with it. Yeah. So I think to let, let's try to anchor that question to a model that I talk about later in the book, and I think then we can from this have have various uh, various lanes of conversation and that is you're asking basically when do we communicate mm -hmm. and it's it's an important question because i didn't find necessarily any one model that clearly outlined it however in my own experience and the experiences i've observed of other coaches i felt that there was a very clear pattern of communication that if you would could start to create the categories or the buckets by which we can talk about coaching communication. And one of them is to understand when we should communicate. And so in the book, I talk about this as the, just the simple acronym, DDCDD. And that stands for describe, demonstrate, cue, do, debrief. So let's take context, because you're right, Eric. Context matters a whole heck of a lot when it comes to answering that question. Let's say you're working with someone who is new. Okay. I don't care if they're young or they're old, but you're, you're working with someone new and you're teaching them a movement pattern for the first time. At least this is the first time you've taught it to them. Uh, I talk about people utilizing the long loop because I call this the coaching communication loop. So by the long loop, my suggestion is, well, initially you want to give this athlete context around what they're doing. Context allows them to gain understanding reducing anxiety associated with uncertainty and start to lay the mental framework that they're going to use to perform this movement. And so that's when we describe the movement and that description, let's say it's a sprint is saying, Hey, you're about to go through an acceleration. I want you to come out of a two point stance, blah, 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 blah. Here's the body position. You're going to run over 15 yards. Okay. Then you're going to demonstrate it. Possibly you demonstrate it. You have another athlete demonstrate it, or maybe you even show a video. But by giving them the verbal and the visual, we talk about this in kind of the motor learning world as dual coding. We give them two different types of sensory input to understand what they're about to do. Now, that's fantastic. I think most, most coaches do that. Now, does it have to be done in that order? Can you demonstrate first and then describe? Yeah, I think that's where the art comes in. Uh, should you be describing while you're demonstrating? 
meaning should they have to process visual information at the same exact time as they're processing verbal information? Yeah, I'd say probably not. I think it's best to keep them separate. And if I'm demonstrating, maybe accent certain parts of the movement with a push or a boom or a long single word verbs, just to draw the attention to the part of the visual that you think is important. Okay. So what we've done here is we've given the person context. We've described and demonstrated. But the question I would ask listeners is, have you coached yet? You've given them all this information. You've given them a lot of what. Here's what this looks like and what is going to happen. But have you answered the question of how they're going to achieve that? how they're going to perform that. And that's where the third piece comes in, the cue. The cue is meant to be the summary, the exclamation mark at the end of the sentence. It's meant to be the brief phrase that we can send them into the movement with that allows them to focus on one simple thing to help them perform that movement better. So in the case of the sprint, it might be, okay, now for this first repetition, I want you simply to focus on being explosive off the ground or fast off the line. Very general, very high level, let's say for the first time I'm teaching it. Then they do it, they perform the movement, and then we debrief it. And when it comes to the debrief, that is such a rich, important part of the coach-athlete relationship. And to just put a nod back to the research study, that's where questions are critical. Because at the end of the day, to coach someone, we need to understand their experience. We need to understand how it felt to them, how they process the information we sent them into the movement with. And thus, if we're not conversing, if we're not asking questions, we don't close the feedback loop. We don't get the subjective sense of the athlete or the client that we need to understand if we need to change the cue, if we need to cue less, or if we need to change tact altogether. So I call that the long loop, Eric. And I believe that we use that long loop when we're working with someone new or we're teaching a movement for the first time. Now, let's be honest. Once I've done that initial description and demonstration, do I need to redo that every single time? Do I need to give that long form instruction every single time? No. So as someone gains experience, that's when I talk about shifting to the short loop. And that's where we go. Cue it. Do it. Debrief it. Cue it. Do it. Debrief it where that debrief really needs to be about collaboration, but also can that cue be about collaboration? Most certainly it can. In the book, I talk about the cue and typically it comes from a coach, but it doesn't have to be. The cue is nothing more than the last idea that goes into their head before they move. And ideally it's the kind of idea that will help them move better. It does not matter if that idea comes from you, the coach, or they, the athlete, but you need to be the facilitator of that idea coming into the fore. So move now into the context of the experienced athlete, back to your question of when you should communicate. Uh, let me reference a very interesting study to answer that question, and then we can go beyond this. Uh, Dr. Gabrielle Wolf, who I talk about quite extensively in the book, she is the foremost researcher on this area of cueing and movement that is globally called attentional focus. Basically, what you attend to, what you think about while you move and how it impacts your movement. And she did a really interesting study whereby they gave cues after every single repetition or they only gave cues after 33% of repetitions. Okay, so one group 100%, one group 33%.
Now, in that study, we haven't talked about this yet, Eric. They broke the kind of cues up into two categories. Uh, one group was only given external cues. So these were cues that had to do with the outcome of the movement, the environment. And, and, and the task, the skill, was lofting a soccer ball into a given target space. And these were novices. They, they, they weren't soccer players. Okay, So half the group, either 100 or 33% of the time, got a cue that was external. It was about the environment, the ball, where to place the ball, where to kick the ball. It did not relate to their body. There was no mention of mechanics, hips, knees, joints, muscles, not mentioned in the cue, i.e. external. The other half of the participants got only internal cues. So they were told about foot placement, knee position, hip position. It was all internal language about the body and the technical movement itself. Okay, so external, internal. And then within each of those groups, did you get feedback 100% or 33%? And here's what they found. The external cues independent of whether you got feedback 100 or 33% of the time, outperformed the internal group. And in outperforming, it means they were more accurate. What that tells us, and we can get into this, is that the, the kind of language we give that we call external allows both in performance and long-term learning, better performance and long-term learning than internal language. But here's the key piece. They did equally well when you gave them information 33% of the time as they did when you gave it to them 100% of the time. And this gets back to studies in the 70s that show that if you give cues, if you give feedback too often, we can create a dependency. And so what this study showed is, wow, you give them a cue every third rep, you give them a little crumb, a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of feedback, and then allow them to run with it allow them to play with it, to integrate, right, to challenge themselves, to make mistakes, to have the ugly reps and solve for themselves on how to fix them. That equally gives you, the coach, time to see how they adapt, see what works, what doesn't work. So as I said earlier, the next time you give a cue or facilitate a new cue coming to the fore, you do it with greater purpose and make sure it's at the signal rather than the noise. It's so comical because in the baseball world, you, you know, anytime you watch like a relief pitcher warming up for a game or you see like the, the spring training mounds where there's six guys throwing side by side, their coaches are standing there always with their arms crossed right behind them. <laughs> and like just from experience, yeah, like yeah. one out of 10 loves it, you know, and they, they're looking back at them. They're asking for feedback and every single one. And the other nine are just like, shut up. You know, like I have, I have stuff I'm working on. I need to be alone with my thoughts and my movements. So it's, it's definitely and Eric, is that one, is yeah. that one guy a performer? Is yeah. that one a gamer? Can that person get in when the pressure is on and the coach is not available? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Cause oftentimes that dependency is filling a gap for that person. And the reality is that coach ain't standing behind them when the game's on the line. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, mo moving on, one of my favorite parts about this book was, there was an intriguing look at memory. Um, and you, you talked about how it's far easier, um, to call your, to recall new information that you've learned when it's wrapped in the context of something we already know. So a lot, mm. uh, this makes sense in my world, but you know, I think for, for someone just hearing it for the first time, it might not. So can you elaborate a little bit more and talk about some of the maybe actionable strategies coaches can use to make new concepts stick with their athletes? Yeah, 100%. So we'll, we'll do a little bit of a, of a, a quick thought experiment here that I use in the book. So for listeners at home, I want you to scan back over, and it might not be difficult with the amount of novel things going on right now, but scan back over the last, let's say, 12 months of your life 
And I want you to pick out one moment that really stands out to you emotionally. Could be positive. It could be negative. But scan back 12 months and pick out one moment that really stands true for you. And allow it to fill your mind, fill your memory, replay it like an HD movie. Okay? So probably not too difficult to do. Eric, I'm sure you have yours as well. Yeah. So locked in. Now, what is it? It's uh, it's Friday. I want you to think back to last Thursday. Uh, can you remember what you wore, what you were doing, what you had for breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Any of the detail about the day. And unless that day happens to be a remarkably novel, interesting day, on average, we're not going to be able to remember in any remarkable detail something that happened a week ago or seven days ago. But if we can, we can think back to a year, two years, three years, decades in the past. If something was of high emotional value, uh, uniquely important to us and novel, it's far easy to remember. So a feature of memory is that memories are stronger the more emotional they are. So when we talk about coaching, how do we make sure that our coaching stands out from an emotional perspective? And I think there's many, many different ways we can go about doing that. But one of those ways that I talk about in the book is, number one, when you're communicating, are you using a person's name? When we put a person's name in front of information we're about to give, we immediately call out to them that it's going to be far more valuable. Uh, number two, unless we are in the sport of strength and conditioning, the vast majority of us are working with individuals who the real reason they're there is to get better at a sport, a sport that likely they love and the, the why, meaning their purpose in life is somehow embedded or related to that sport. So the name game, are we making the bridge? Are we making the connection? Are you putting the why in the what? So when I'm teaching a rugby player, a forward, how to squat, am I talking about squatting or am I talking about scrummaging, the body positions that they need to be in, the strength that they need to deploy in the tackle, let's say, in the physical contact of this game that they're trying to play? Am I parlaying the value they put on their sport and bringing that into the movements that we're performing right now. So individualizing it, connecting it back to their why, right? Connecting that back to the movements that we're teaching. These are all different ways, if you would, to put emotional hashtags on the movements and the cues that we are delivering to increase a little bit of value. Uh, when someone does something remarkable or they get a personal record or they make an important shift in their movement, do you actually celebrate that win? So often in coaching, we go to the next thing that is wrong rather than really allowing the player to soak in something that they've done successfully. And especially in sport, a lot of our big goals take a long time to achieve. So how are we making micro memories on a day-to-day -day basis, celebrating those wins? Something as trivial as getting a few more repetitions out of a movement or making a very important shift in coordination from a light bulb perspective. So the first global area I'm talking about is how do you coat your coaching in emotional value, an emotional value that is connected to them as an individual and relates to things that they want 
and their motivation, their it, as we used to say at Exos. That's, that's categorically one way to make your coaching stickier. And I talk about far more examples in the book. The other way is to tap in to their internal narrative. So what do I mean by that? I've already given this example a couple different ways on this, on this call. And that is I need to use their language, their frame of reference to coach them. So what do I mean by that? When I'm working with someone and I deploy a cue for the first time, I'm coming at that interaction from a selfish, biased perspective. Now, we don't do that with any malice, and I don't mean that to come across as overly harsh, but communication is a best guess. I'm using my words, my frame of reference to communicate with you. But if when I'm communicating that cue, you don't like the word explode, or the word explode doesn't resonate with you, but the word push or drive or punch might for one reason or another, by inviting you to say, well, how would you phrase this? Or we need to improve this area. What do you think you can focus on to improve that? Or here's a cue. Give me that cue back in your own words. Each one of those scenarios, as you said earlier, Eric, you're inviting them into the learning process. But also in doing so, if I'm an active listener, I now hear the words that they use. And once I have their words, that's what I mean by their internal narrative. I have the way that they would describe what I'm trying to teach them. My job is to shine a light on what I'm trying to teach them and invite them to comment. Sometimes they do that organically on their own through discussion. Other times I ask them a question, inviting them into the learning process. Now we can parlay this into something as a final point here that is even more powerful, which is really where I get into in the book. And that's this idea of analogy. If I'm trying to teach someone how to accelerate, I can say things like explode off the ground, but even something like explode off the ground isolates out the lower body rather than considering the entire movement as a collective. Now, telling someone to explode off the ground, as we know, is going to be far more effective than telling them to extend their hips Mm -hmm. because exploding off the ground is a summative cue that allows the whole body to, to solve it and to contribute. But if I then give that person an analogy, and this is the power in analogy from a memory perspective. I take something that person is already familiar with, let's say a jet taking off, and I utilize that familiarity and I simply make a comparison to this movement. So I want you to explode off the ground like a jet taking off. Now, if we look at that comparison, a jet goes from low to high, as does an athlete in acceleration. A jet moves progressively from slow to fast. That's what we want to see in acceleration. A jet is a long steel, strong structure. Head to heel, strong as steel. That's how we want the body to move. So embedded inside that comparison is all the biomechanical detail one would need for sprinting to at least establish a good sprinting form, at the very least how the body should rise gradually. But it does so by leveraging existing knowledge. And that makes the learning easier It's a far more interesting thought than exploding through hips or pushing grounds away. And ultimately, because it taps into their mind as it currently exists, it allows the barrier to learning to lower, giving them a positive experience, supporting motivation. So analogy, using their language and 
bringing emotional hashtags, emotional value, the why and the what around the overall learning process. Those are three tangible ways to tap memory. That's awesome. And all right, so this is going to be a total shift uh, of pace, but I'm I'm actually really intrigued at this. So anytime you see someone who's like innovated in the field, and I, I always think back to like Stuart McGill's work, um, yes. you know, where there are people that totally make, oh, he's only been herniating pig spines in the in the lab. He doesn't know anything. It's like <laughs> this guy's seen thousands and thousands of really broken backs. Um, you know, and even like some of the stuff we've done with baseball, it's like Cressy hates overhead work. I'm like, actually, we do a lot of overhead work. Maybe it's just different yeah. than how you appreciate it. I'm curious as to where you feel like um, your ideas have misconstrued. Like, are there instances where people have perceived things completely incorrectly? Yeah, and they're and they're probably justified in some cases. <laughs> so uh, when I first, so my very first presentation on this topic around language was in a presentation called "What We Say Matters," and I delivered it at Perform Better, and it, it was well received. But I talked about this idea of internal and external cueing, and so I've defined them earlier. But again. Internal cueing is where you're, you're cueing body movements, joint motion, muscle activation. Your language is in anatomy versus external cues. Your language is, is in outcome or impact on environment. So focusing on barbells and where barbells are moving rather than elbows extending and shoulders flexing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when I initially explained internal cues and external cues, I presented it as a binary concept because that's how it is in the research. And I said that external cues are good. And internal cues are bad. And ultimately, I got a lot of questions like, well, hold on. Are you saying that I can never reference the body again? Which first and foremost, even if that was true, no one would abide to that. So I knew that wasn't going to be very effective. And I said, no, I'm not saying you can't reference the body, but external cues are better. But here was the problem, Eric. I never, at least through my lens, I never shared with people what the heck to do with internal cues, internal language. Uh, and referencing the bottom, the body, which is no question, there's a role for it. Yeah. So that's where I was. I was not misconstrued. I was understood correctly. And in the book, I do my best. And probably the last five years of my presentations, I've done my best to write that wrong. In that, if I can just share this, because obviously the audience would want to know where the heck do they go? When I talk about that DDCDD, the coaching communication loop, for me, it's a very simple story. When I use internal language. I'm describing the movement. I'm not coaching it. I'm giving just concrete explanations of what is happening or what is not happening at either a muscle activation or a joint motion level. And so for me, we can utilize that language in open discussion when we're describing a movement or when we are debriefing it. The the only call it hard line that I'm making, and I believe the evidence supports this, my experience definitely supports this and everyone else who I know who abides to these principles supports it as well is it's that cue. It's that last idea that rides along in the mind as the, as the player moves that needs to come in the form of an external cue or an analogy. And so I think in the book, we do a good job of outlining that is what I call the language locker of, of the coach and saying, Hey, there's a home for internal language. There's a home for external language. Here's exactly where it goes. They're neighbors. They can hang out sometimes, but here's the order of operations to maximize how language impacts movement. That's great. All right. So you're a dad and I'm a dad. We both have young ones at home and I, I can't help. I mean, I, you're never supposed to micromanage how you parent, right? But no. as, I, as I read this book, it got me thinking about how I teach my kids. And I have twin five-year-old daughters plus a one-year-old. And our twins are 
polar opposites. So we're, we're actually like doing the homeschooling thing right now while, you know, yeah. the, the worldwide crisis is going on. And it's just, it's been remarkable watching just how they, they learn to read differently. Like one rocks or sight cards like crazy. The other one looks at it for five seconds and then, Oh, look, there's a shiny object on the other side of the house. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like I, I, this book got me thinking about how I teach them, how they communicate uh, with me when we're playing a new game. Um, as you've researched all these communication and, and queuing topics, how has it shaped you as a parent? Do you find yourself almost accidentally coaching your kids like you would your athletes? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, so I am actively working with my wife as a collaborative coaching pair to, to uh, facilitate the learning uh, of my son on his, on his two-wheeler. Okay. okay. And so we've, we've taught my daughter and she can ride a bike, no problem. And so now we got this little guy. And so I think this is, it's a great question. And I'll show a lot of the, the, the things that I'm doing possibly right and definitely wrong. Here. I, I'm taking notes because I literally was doing this with twins yesterday. My back is okay. absurdly okay. sore so, from running tilted over with two of them. Okay, for three hours. So here we are. Here we go. Here we go. So like, like most, when you get a bike at, at the store, at the shop here, you know, it comes with the training wheels and, you know, we're, we're conditioned to think that, okay, training wheels provide scaffolding for the kid to ride a two wheeler. So my boy has been on these training wheels, you know, for the last couple of weeks and we've been doing morning walks and he is zipping around the neighborhood. He's going so fast that now he's, he's catching one of the training wheels and he's falling off the bike so much because he can't actually turn the bike the direction he wants to go because of these, these things. So I'm like, listen, you're going to fall less if we take the training wheels off. And he's like, okay. So we do a session without the training wheels. And of course he's scared out of his mind. And just to show about the specificity of training, he had been riding his bike for almost a month now with training wheels. And yes, it's a close comparative activity, but the second I take the training wheels off, do you think he can immediately balance on the bike? No, not at all. So he's afraid to fall. And had I let him go, he would have fallen. So I wanted to be initially a positive experience. So we try that two more times and he keeps wanting to go back to these training wheels. And in that moment, I'm thinking the longer this kid knows he can go back to, as long as he knows he can keep going back to the training wheels, he's not going to challenge himself on this bike because the reality is the training wheels experience is far better for him right now mm -hmm. than the two wheel experience. So just logically put yourself in a four year old's head. Why would you go to the lesser of the two experiences? I'm going to go with the one I can rock right now. And in that moment, Eric, I realized I'm queuing, you know, we're talking about just for me, the only cues I give them is the bike goes where you look and you got to push through the pedals. But I let him come up with the way he would use the word push. He says speed. I said, do you want to use push, burst, speed, blast? He's like, dad, I want speed. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I need you. I need speed. And I just need you to know that wherever you look is where that bike is going to go. And literally, those are the only cues I gave my daughter. It's the only cues I'm giving my son. So for what it's worth. And so here we are. Those cues, they're not working. Okay. <laughs> they're, not, they're not working. He's falling over. My wife suggests we get him on the grass. We get him on the grass. But because the grass slows him down, he can't get enough speed. He's still falling over. Mm -hmm. And so he's he runs over to the garage. He says, I want these training wheels on. I want these training wheels on. And I'm thinking, okay, I got to end this right now. I said, I said, Madden, do you still wear a diaper? 
And he looked at me so pissed. And he's like, I don't pee in my pants. I don't wear a diaper. <laughs> I said, okay, you don't wear a diaper. I said, exactly. Because if I gave you diapers, you he said it right there. I said, if I gave you diapers, what would you do? He's like, I'd pee in my pants. I said, exactly. So if I give you these training, if you keep putting these training wheels on, do you think you're ever going to commit to riding this bike? And, and he looked at me and he said, no. I said, so what do you need to do with them? I kid you not. He picks up the training wheels. He goes over to the garbage bin and he throws them away. He comes over to the bike and he points to it. and He says, I'm going to ride you. <laughs> by that after, by, now he can't take off on his own, but by that afternoon he was riding, he was riding down the street. That's awesome. <laughs> and so I share that in, in, and I've said this before, psychology trumps motor learning. Now they're shared concepts, but here's what I mean by that. Motivation trumps motor learning. And I should be saying motor, motivation is a key element in motor learning. He had to buy in, believe, and be motivated to tackle that challenge before any opportunity for coaching to work was even going to be on offer. And so if I was to give anything as a parent that I've taken from my own studies is I have to involve them. I have to bring about their perspective. I have to bring about their autonomy because at the end of the day, I could be the best coach in the world. But if they don't want to be coached, <laughs> if they don't want to be in that moment with me, I can't access all that goodness I've studied for. So how do you create the safe conditions for someone to want to learn? And only then can many of the ideas and fairness of my book start to be applied. That's a tremendous. Now, my, my challenge is they both want to ride and I can't push both of them at the same time. Twin, 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 twin twins rock your world, man. I'm, I'm bringing a, I'm bringing a knife to a gunfight. Now, yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the book itself. Um, I was fortunate to, to review it in advance and it was outstanding. Um, so talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what coaches out there can expect to, um, to learn what'll rock their world as they work their way through it and, and just share a little bit more about it. Yeah, I mean, I thought getting a, you know, I thought getting a PhD was hard. I thought being a parent was hard, but trying to write a book, and I know you've done this yourself, yeah. is a, is a difficult, is a difficult process. And I've learned so much in the process uh, of writing it. Someone messaged me the week I announced that I was going to write the book. And he was someone who had taken uh, my mentorships at Exos for, for, uh, oh gosh, I think he had done phase one through three, whatever it is. So I knew this guy quite well. And he messaged me. He said, Nick, I'm so excited that you're going to write this book. And this was before I'd gone pen to paper, Eric. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm so excited you're going to write this book, but please do not write another textbook. <laughs> put your, put your heart in this and tell us how you coach. That's what the world needs. And I was, I was rocked by it, to be honest with you. One, in a positive way, just I appreciated this guy's candor because it came from such an honest place as if he was speaking for every S&C personal trainer coach out there. And I've not forgotten those words. So I think it's important when you write, you, you, you put someone in front of you. And so I kind of put him and everything he represents in front of me and that I have got to write a book that does not shy away from the science and the detail, but doesn't force it down your throat. I need to talk about the science, the detail, and the strategy as if we're having a conversation, Eric, like the one we're having now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not going to speak for you. You can tell everyone what you thought, but I did my best to hide the jargon 
to hide the science throughout the book. Uh, I was literally thinking that because as we prepared for this, I went back and just reviewed some of some of the sections that were pertinent to it. And one of the things that you'll notice is there might be some some sciencey jargon, some some big words, some you know some delving into the research. But what I always notice is every three pages or so, it was imagine athlete Joe. And he's doing this, and you're saying this, and you're trying to accomplish this. So there were these, there were these scenarios that were mixed in, which really broke it up. And you didn't, you don't see that in textbooks. The textbooks are dry. You cover a page a day, and it's like reading stereo instructions. This was actually very, very interactive, and I, I really appreciated that part of it for yeah, sure. Absolutely. And, and the goal was to use the method of the book to write the book. Mm-hmm. And then if I'm going to be talking about how to coach and how to put pictures in your athletes' minds to help them learn better and be motivated to learn. I couldn't write this this sterile, dry book about that topic. So ultimately, I try to use as much narrative and storytelling, micro stories, to illustrate the concepts. So to give the overall canned line, what is the book about? It's about what to think while you move. Mm -hmm. That's really what the book is about. And to the degree that coaches coach, our goal oftentimes is to change or nudge the way our athletes think while they move to help them move better. And so ultimately, that's why it's called the language of coaching. It's how language impacts the thinking of your athlete or your client or your patient and the way that thinking impacts movement. And as coaches, if we reflect, we do this all the time. I mean, the vast majority of what we say in the whistle to whistle beginning to end session is in some form or fashion trying to influence positively the way our athletes learn to move. And so that's why this is deserving of a book, likely multiple books, but this is really the the first book of its collective type to address the topic. So it's broken into three sections. The first section is called learning to learn. The second section is called learning to coach. And the third section is called learning to cue. Uh, Each chapter or excuse me, each section has three chapters. So in section number one, learning to learn, we open up with a a narrative around basically, how do you know what to coach? And you talked about it already, Eric. If you don't know what to coach, cueing is is the second priority. So first of all, how do we systematically understand what to coach? From there, we shift into the two battery-powered pieces of learning, and that's memory and attention. And so insofar as the science is concerned, it's really those chapters two and three on memory and attention, attention, where the greatest level of scientific jargon, so to speak, exists. But it's all wrapped in story, narrative and thought experiments to make it really accessible and very strategy driven. When we get into part two, uh, learning to coach, that's where we start to dig into specifically the impact of language. So we open up with a discussion of the DDCDD model, so the coaching communication loop. Before we talk about language, we have to know when to speak. From there, we then zoom into this idea of the cue and talk about the kind of information that should go into that cue before they move. And that's where we introduce the concept of internal and external cueing and attentional focus. And really, as we then get into chapters five and six, chapter five is around cueing in a traditional sense, and chapter six is around analogies, That's where we dive in. That's the heartbeat of the whole book, where we actually provide a system, a 3D model of queuing and a model for building analogies. And this, I'd like to think, Eric, and you can tell the the listeners, 
we get into the nuance of yep. how cues evolve. Yep. How do you change your language to adapt to individuals? Yep. How do you come up with analogies on the fly? Yeah, even like group group versus individuals too. Like I think a lot Absolutely. of people forget you're not just one on one and able to you know kind of standardize it to what you know of their history. But when you've got 15 athletes in front of you, how do you speak in generalities to still have that pronounced impact? It, it did a very good job on that front. Well, 100. percent And the part of the book you haven't read <laughs> is then the final part, learning to cue. And so my whole idea was, I'm a big believer in that. I rather teach you how to fish than give you a fish. But if you starve on your way to learning how to fish, I haven't helped you. So chapter seven of the book is is called The Roadmap. And I was quite strong on this point. So an entire chapter is dedicated to behavior change, but not the behavior of your athletes, your behavior as a coach. And it outlines an entire model of how you can systematically back to almost, I think, your first questionnaire of how you integrate this systematically into your own coaching behavior. And then finally, chapters eight, nine, and 10, which took almost as long as writing chapters one through seven, we, we bring to life 27 movements, 27 movements that are movements. They're not exercises. We're not focusing on a drill library here. These are 27 holistic movements across weight room based movements, power based movements and call it movement skills. And we use the, the, the DDCDD model throughout each of the 27. And you get three different categories of cues, what we call the traditional cue, utilizing the 3D model of cueing, the cue tape, which is this cue tape system of how we use markers on the body as a surrogate for using internal cues, and then a section on analogies. And the key thing, if you go to Amazon.com, you'll see there's a 14-page layout of what the inside of the book looks like. We have literally brought, I think, a 100 analogies to life. And this is credit to human kinetics, where we took real models, shot performing real movements, and we dropped them in to the visual fictional scenarios that our analogies are trying to prompt. And so I think if you think back to, to Bert and Mary Poppins in the first Mary Poppins, when they go into the cartoon and you kind of get that contrast between the imaginary cartoon and the real person, that's what we've done here. And it captures the imagination, I believe, in the same way that we will be able to capture imagination if we are better at designing and deploying analogies. So th th this thing top to bottom, everything is covered. And, you know, it's it's over 15 years in the making. People need to know that this was not done overnight. Yeah. And I think the term must read gets thrown on way too often in, in many, many industries. For me, this is a must read, you know, because it's, it, it helps you regardless of your level of experience in the field, right? Not everybody can go and die, you know, cover diagnosis and treatment of movement impairment syndromes, right? Yes. You know, that's, yeah. that's very, very rough reading for someone who's 22 years old right out of college. Whereas at 29, 30, it, it's impactful. Um, I think this is something that can be read, you know, very, very, it, it can be, you know, <laughs> any time of day, it can be on the beach reading. It doesn't just have to be something that a bunch of nerd strength coaches are covering, you know, as they sit around a table and brainstorm. So um, can't recommend it enough. It's available June 15th, but they can pre-order on Amazon now, correct? Yes. And the book actually will be shipping late April. The June 15th is still a, a placeholder. So okay, nice. I'll be, so my, my new website, the language of coaching.com, I'll be putting up a 20% discount cool. for if you order on human kinetics and human kinetics will be shipping worldwide. Amazon, for uh, the, the the obvious reasons, will have delayed in shipping the book. Yep. 
because obviously they have more important priorities as they should. But the Kindle and iBook most certainly will be available late, late April. That's awesome. And Nick, you also have some, some awesome social media. I'm a, a regular consumer of your, uh, your Twitter stuff. So you're Nick Winkleman on both Twitter and Instagram. So I'd encourage folks you to got check it. you out there as well. Um, listen, man, thanks so much for doing this. So this was, uh, this was excellent, not just for our listeners, but for me as well. I, I picked up some good strategies just like I did with the book. So we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Eric, man, you're a master. It's a privilege. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.